Hey, everybody, this is Brooke, and this is a reminder that my six-week memoir course starts this week. Craft Essentials is digging into some of the more nuanced craft corners to support you to write the best and deepest memoir you can write. We start this week with Janet Fitch, who will be teaching us how to write with all of our senses, and continue on in the series with Rebecca Carroll, EJ Coe, Janine Ouellette, and me and Linda Joy Myers. We always record every class, so it's not too late to sign up. And I invite you to check out the details at magicofmemoir.com. Thank you. Hello, writers. I'm Grant Faulkner, a writer who loves the short story, the miniature story, as well as big, messy novels. But I'm here today with my co-host, Brooke Warner, to jump into this other corner of the writing world, a, a corner by appearances. But I find that sometimes the small and overlooked spaces hold the most interesting stories. And in fact, I wrote about this in my book, The Art of Brevity. And I think we write stories essentially in different sized containers. And those containers allow for different types of stories. So a small container allows or requires a more intense focus. You know, it makes the writer focus on the essence of a story and how to communicate that essence through techniques like omission or making use of the powers of suggestion. Whereas in a bigger container, you can pile in a bunch of different ingredients and stir them all about as if it's a big cauldron. And I recently read an interview with Sarah Novitz and she said she often uses the container idea with her students. She tells them you could carry your coffee around in a zip bag or you could just put it in a cup as a way to kind of kind of get them to think about structure and what suits the needs of their particular project. And I was thinking about this with Ghassan Zenadine's new collection of stories, Dearborn. And, and Dearborn is the title of the collection, but Dearborn is, is also a city in Michigan. Uh, and one, one thing that I think that's interesting about Dearborn is how, how the stories capture the diverse range and complexities of the American Arab American community in Dearborn, which I, which I suppose is his own container in a way. Um, you know, he could have done this in a novel, I know, but there was just something that short stories afforded that was different. And, and the collection allowed him to write stories, you know, that span several decades. And he explored so many different themes, you know, identity and generational conflicts and war trauma and migration, sexuality, queerness, home and belonging and more. And, and the collection, you know, it's, it's ironic, but it allowed him to be both expansive, but to also drill down with a deeper and, and narrower mission than a novel, I think. And, and one that, you know, requires drilling down rather than kind of lighting out like a novel does. Brooke, I'm curious, is, is that what resonated with you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I loved the collection for all the reasons that you just said, you know, to be invited in this way to see so many aspects of Arab American life in his stories, and then also to experience Dearborn, where I've never been before, but which is known for its expat community, and its broader diaspora. Uh, and I loved his takes on this, you know, and all of their variety. And it's interesting, because we think that a novel has breadth, you know, <laughs> because of its bigness, like you're talking about. But then there's a really different kind of breadth that a short story collection offers, right? Because uh, writers can shift from topic to topic and care character to character, and the stories don't necessarily have to be strongly linked, although I definitely recommend writers who are doing short story collections to consider some sort of guiding theme that links their stories. Uh, and in Gassan's collection, the story Speedo Man, I think, was my favorite. Uh, the story is centered around a group of husbands and wives who routinely lounge in the community pool, and they become obsessed with a newcomer who wears a Speedo to the pool. 
Uh, and the husbands see the stranger as a symbol of their past lives and they pine for their youth while the wives are infatuated with his form and literary interests, you know, for their quote unquote thriving book club, as they put it. Uh, so I just liked how Gasson could capture the drama through these different points of view, especially tackling the gender differences between what men see and what women see. I thought it was really brilliant. Yeah, and and never underestimate the the power of a speedo in a story. <laughs> Bring it on! Well, there would need to be more stories with speedos as the central um, dramatic uh, tension. But yeah, I, I agree, Brooke, and, and I love that story for the same reason. And actually, I first encountered it, you know, kind of randomly, and I encountered Gasson kind of randomly through through Vanessa Chance. She she tweeted about this story, which she discovered as a triquarterly editor, and she and she her tweet she wrote. Gassan Zenadine's use of the we voice to denote not one, but two groups of Lebanese men and women immigrants discombobulated by a new stranger blew my mind when I read it in the slush pile. Um, and I remember being like, this came in slush and we get to have it. And I, it was just such a nice reminder uh, and reassuring to read about a story rising up through the slush pile. And, it, and you know, it speaks to, to how doing something imaginative and daring on the page captures an editor's interest because, uh, you know, his story obviously stood out. For sure. And these kinds of success stories are ones that I like that we share on the show because <laughs> mm -hmm. writers are discovered in slush piles. And I feel like we can maybe be a little discouraging sometimes because we talk about the importance of the author platform or the idea that good writing isn't enough these days. You know, I do stand by those things being true mostly, but there are always going to be those writers whose work stands out or who rise to the surface or editors who fall in love with something as is the case here. Uh, and this seems to be, you know, one of those stories that we can share and say, you know, Yes, it could happen to you. Uh, and the other thing about Gasson, though, is that he's funny. You're going to speak to this in the interview. Like, mm -hmm. there's a story called Money Chickens, in which a character who's distrustful of everything in the US saves his money by putting it in a plastic bag and then literally sticking it inside of a chicken. And it's so outrageous and it speaks to the weird things that people do. And I just thought Gasson's use of comedy is especially good, um, kind of like an arresting way, especially because he is tracing other such deep subjects related to the American, uh, Arab American experience, you know, things like war trauma and estrangement. So I was curious, Grant, like, that is a skill set, right, to pull off both comedy and trauma, although, of course, there is a thing called tragicomedy. Uh, but what do you think about executing something like that in a single collection in terms of it, it's not like it's an easy thing to do, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think either tragedy or comedy unto themselves are difficult and to put them together, you know, that's, that's super difficult. Um, and so it was interesting to hear um, in our interview with Gassan, how he thinks of himself as primarily a comedic writer. So he sees the world with a comedic eye and, and that informs even his tragic subject matter. So the collection is, is like you said, really, it's really tragic comedy. And, and also I thought it was interesting how he said he, he might not get people to laugh out loud on the page because that is actually really hard to do, but that his comedic impulse, you know, he views it as, as this hook or a pull for the reader, you know, so his, his comedic sensibility essentially like decenters them, you know, mm -hmm. and I thought that was a really interesting way to, to think about it. Right. This idea that comedy does disarm people. And especially since he was talking specifically about being a member of a community that, you know, maybe has gotten a bad rap or, um, you know, that obviously just because of cultural and political issues. 
So before we end today, I want to note one more thing about publishing, because we hear about how publishers don't want to publish short story collections. We've talked about this before on the show. They're a hard sell. Publishers do prefer novels, but reading this collection was a great reminder that short fiction isn't dead. Uh, and in fact, we've had a number of short story writers on the show over the years, Gish Jen, Disha Filia, Kim Adonazio, among others. Uh, and anthologies of short fiction often do well. So you don't want to give up, you know, just because the industry is telling you that it's like not the hot thing right now. Uh, and I was thinking, you know, the best American short stories comes out every year. It's a perennial bestseller. And that's a great place to go too to see like if you're a reader of short stories, or you want to read the best of, uh, that's a great collection. And then notably, short stories are regularly optioned for film and TV, too. So those like, you know, it's just this weird thing in publishing where you'll hear like this entire subset is like not not working, but then there's evidence to the contrary. Uh, and I just wanted to note some of my favorites. Everything Must Go, uh, which had Will Ferrell in it, came out in 2010, was based on Raymond Carver's Why Don't You Dance? Uh, Secretary 2002, kind of a crazy movie, was based on Mary Gatskill's Secretary, so same name. And then Brokeback Mountain, of course, which got some Academy Awards and came out in 2005, was based on Annie Proulx's uh, Brokeback Mountain. So these are just a few of the better known, but uh, ones that I've actually both read and seen. Yeah, I agree, Brooke. You know, in fact, at least with flash fiction, I think short stories are they're, they're quite in vogue in a way for readers and writers. And some people say that's because we have shorter attention spans. But I'm but I'm going to go back to my container analogy. I think I think short fiction will always matter because of the stories that fit into its containers. And short stories are often more intense than novels. And and if you put ten or fifteen of them together into a collection like Dearborn, you know that's a that's a lot of intensity and a lot of breadth in one book. Yeah, and that's a nice segue into the interview because we're going to hear more about Gassan's take on Dearborn. Uh, and he has certainly written a book that has many containers and many facets of Arab American life. So we'll be back uh, right after this short musical break. Hey, everyone. It is fall, which means it's National Novel Writing Month season, a.k.a. NaNoWriMo. And if you don't know about NaNoWriMo, it is a challenge to write 50,000 words of your story in the month of November. That's 30 days. And we believe that a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. And here are two things to think about in order to encourage you to sign up for NaNoWriMo. One, it's kind of like a writing boot camp. It trains you to be the writer by having you show up every day to write and to reach for a goal. But then it's also a rollicking writing community. We have a thousand volunteers around the world who organize in-person writing events, and we're basically everywhere on the internet. It's a galvanizing force to feel that the whole world is writing with you. And it's free. So all you have to do is go to nanorimo.org and sign up. It's like signing up for any social media profile. And then get ready to write on November 1st. I'll see you there. Welcome back, everybody. I'm excited to introduce our guest today, Ghassan Zenadine, who was born in Washington, D.C. and raised in the Middle East. He's an assistant professor of creative writing at Oberlin College, and he just published his uh, debut collection of short stories, Dearborn. And he's also co-editor of the creative nonfiction anthology, Hara Baladuna, Arab-American Narratives of Boundary and Belonging. And he lives with his wife and two daughters in Ohio. Welcome, Kassan. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm, I'm really delighted to be here. Yeah, absolutely. We're delighted to have you. And I, I recently heard uh, Dearborn, the city, but also the title of your collection, 
uh, described as the center of Arab America. And I didn't know that. And, you know, I, th- I think I would have guessed New York or maybe another big American city. Yeah. And I don't think anybody I know actually knows this. Um, so I was wondering if you can, can tell us more about the history of Dearborn and how it relates to the uh, Arab American immigrant experience. Sure. You know, it's actually Dearborn has been dubbed the capital of Arab America, and it has the highest concentration of Arab Americans um, uh, in the country. So there I mean, there are approximately around 100,000 Dearborn residents, more than half of which are of Arab descent. Um, so there are a lot of pockets of uh, of Arab Americans, you know, across the country, particularly in in um, New York City, in Los Angeles. But the, but Dearborn has the highest concentration uh, of Arab Americans. So if you uh, are in the east part of town, which is the Arab part of town. It is predominantly Arab, and so you'll see street signs in Arabic, uh, billboards in Arabic, store signs in Arabic. You know, I'd often go into a a grocery store, a cafe, and I I wouldn't know whether or not to speak in Arabic or English. Um, So it's such a unique city. But, you know, it has has a really interesting uh, immigration history. So uh, there were different waves of Arab immigration uh, from the Middle East to America, the first one being... um, in the late 19th century, Arabs started to come to America, you know, as early as the late 19th century. But Dearborn, when the Ford Motor Company started paying its employees five dollars a day in 1914, that was an economic incentive uh, to go to Dearborn. So there started to there were more waves of of air migration to the Detroit metropolitan area. Um, and there were massive waves of Arab immigration to Dearborn and the Detroit metropolitan uh, area during the Lebanese Civil War, which was from 1975 to 1990. And then there was the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. So you had a lot of uh, Lebanese who uh, fled Lebanon during those particular times, and they, they sought refuge in Dearborn. And then um, Dearborn has a lot of different Arab ethnicities, so um, including you know um, Iraqis, Yemenis, Syrians, Palestinians. So th- the same thing. I mean, uh, Iraqis who were fleeing uh, you know a civil political strife in Iraq came over. Uh, same was true for Syrians and, and, and Yemenis. So unfortunately, you know, like uh, the, these political occurrences or, or, or political uh, instability, wars, civil wars, political unrest has caused a lot of Arab immigration. But coming to Dearborn, Dearborn is really unique because word gets around that there's, you know, there's an Arab community in Dearborn that you can get along speaking Arabic. And so, you know, the word kind of goes out uh, that there, there's like a, a safe space. So that's why you have a lot of Arab immigrants who come to Dearborn, and they continue to come to to Dearborn. Gosh, thanks for that history. Um, that's that's really fascinating. And we wanted to know more about the genesis of your collection of stories and how it came together. And we often hear about how short story collections have a hard time being sold and that publishers don't really want them. Right. So <laughs> I was curious about whether you thought about this as a novel at some point in the process, um, especially since they are linked stories, or if the stories how you decided to show them really allowed you to tell more breadth of stories. Yeah, it's really interesting. I, so I've, I've always loved writing short stories. Um, and 
Um, you know, so I, I moved to Dearborn in 2018 for a teaching job at the University of Michigan, Dearborn. Before that, I was teaching at a, a liberal arts college in, in central Ohio, and I had just uh, gone through uh, the failure of publishing a novel and had gone through different rounds of submission, and it just wasn't going anywhere. So I, I was really stuck, and um, I, I didn't know, you know, what to turn to next. Um, however, at the same time, I had grown up, I, you know, I, I didn't grow up in Dearborn. I grew up in the Middle East and then in the D.C. area. But I had always like, mythologized Dearborn as a, as a younger boy. Uh, my parents would order batlawa, you know, the dessert batlawa from Dearborn. There's a very famous bakery called Chetila uh, in Dearborn. And for years, you know, uh, we would order it. But I had never, none of us had actually visited Dearborn yet. And then years later, I started to research Dearborn um, as a graduate student. And so for years, I had studied so much about the city. Uh, and I had yet not uh, yet set foot in the city uh, until 2018. So I, I had this like um, kind of this, this deep interest and almost obsession with the city. Uh, and so when I started living in Dearborn, I, it just kind of took my breath away. I, I don't want to romanticize the city because there, there, there are also a lot of problematic issues that, that I came across and that I try to dramatize in my story collection. But it, it was the first time that I felt that I belonged um, as an Arab American uh, or that I felt that I belonged somewhere um, in, in America. And so coupling that with my previous failure in, in trying to publish that novel, I, I started to become just so inspired by the city. And um, it just started with one short story, the first short story in the collection. And from there, I just it just kind of took off writing story one story after the other. Uh, and I never conceived of, of it as as um, a novel. I always saw it as a linked story collection. I've always been really interested in the linked story collection and how you can capture a diverse range of voices and experiences. And that's something I really wanted to capture in the story collection, just, just showing that there's so many different voices, um, that there's no one single voice that represents the community. And I thought the story collection would allow that to happen. We talked about that a little bit uh, earlier in the show, about how the irony is that short stories are shorter, but they, they allow you to, to, to capture all those voices in a way that, that most novels don't. I thought that was really interesting. And, you know, uh, reading your blurbs um, for the collection, there was one that particularly stood out for me, and it was by uh, Omar Alakad, mm -hmm. who said the stories capture an underspoken aspect of the Arab American experience, that sense of being not quite from the place you love and not quite loved by the place you're from. And I thought that was such an interesting moment of dramatic tension. Mm -hmm. And then I actually read Good Housekeeping's review, uh, which described Dearborn as American as it gets. Right. <laughs> so those two descriptions kind of, I guess they, I don't know, they clashed, but they also informed each other. And so I'm in, intrigued by how that description informs your stories to have a place you love and not quite be loved by the place you're from. Yeah, sure. I, I think that I think that has a lot to do with the political climate, um, especially during um, the Trump presidency and uh, the anti-immigrant rhetoric, anti-Muslim rhetoric, the Muslim ban that was present during those years, the presence of ICE uh, in the city. And not not just, I, I should also say, you know, reverberations post-attacks of 9-11. I mean, there's been anti-Arab sentiment before 9-11, right? It's been happening for a while, um, you know, starting from even from like the 1970s up until today. 
And I mention that because, you know, um, what I found just in, in living in Dearborn and that I tried to capture in the story collection is that a lot of the characters embrace kind of like the, 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 the chance to start their own businesses, to build a livelihood for their families. And, and they do develop a deep love for America. Uh, and they feel that, yes, we belong here. We are American citizens. Yet at the same time, they may not feel that they belong and they, may, they might feel otherwise because of the political climate. Like, you know, when, when I mean, when the president of the country, we're um, referencing the, the, the Trump years, you know, says so many derogatory things about immigrants, uh, particularly Muslims, that causes a lot of anxiety and fear uh, in the community. Um, and so you feel that maybe you don't belong. Uh, and especially when you're harassed by FBI agents, ICE agents, uh, Homeland Security agents, you might feel that your your Americanness is almost questioned and that you're being singled out because of you're, you're of Arab descent. So there's always that tension that you're building something in America, you feel that you belong, and yet at the same time, you know, your, your allegiance to America is, is always questioned. So I, I think that's the tension maybe that's going on here. That in a way that a lot of these stories are deeply American stories in the sense that a lot of these characters are just striving to like, pursue their own dreams. And, and, you know, there are a lot of obstacles in, in the way of them. Well, thanks, Kassan. I want to pick up a little bit further on that word underspoken. Uh, you know, it's it's just the truth that the Arab American experience hasn't been broadly portrayed in mainstream narratives, whether it's film or book, you know. So right. lately, I, I think just due to the surge of all of these underrepresented voices coming to the fore, which has been great. I've been reading more Arab American books than ever, uh, but certainly not until recently. And so I'm curious if you could speak to that underspoken nature of the Arab American experience. And if you feel that, you know, some of this stuff that has come to the fore, I mean, like you're talking about the political climate and it's terrible, but in some ways I also think that, you know, for those of us who are seeking out stories that, people like Trump have actually had the reverse effect of making people more interested in reading memoirs and stories by some of these marginalized communities. Do you agree? Yes, I think, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think right now, I, I think it's such an exciting time in the Arab American literature. I mean, there, there are so many diverse writers of Arab descent who are publishing books, memoirs, graphic novels about many different experiences, you know, the queer experience, um, a transgender experience, so many different kinds of experiences. And so it, it's actually, I think it's such an exciting time for Arab American writers. And, and I think more of their work is, is, is being published and publicized. And, and there are some um, TV series, Rami and Mo, that gained a lot of popularity that, you know, that I'm super excited that they're out there because they're showing, you know, a different side of what it means to be Arab American, uh, which also includes being Muslim American. In a way, I think a, a, like a, a lot of us Arab American writers, artists, you, you know, we are up against certain Western ter- stereotypes of Arabs, right, and which are negative. And Arab American women are being portrayed in Western media. Sometimes it, it's it, the portrayal is of Arab or Arab American women as being servile, um, lacking in agency. And so I think trying to kind of resist those stereotypes in our work, but at the same time, trying to show the vibrancy of our culture. So it's not only a matter of just like resisting the stereotypes that are out there, but also embracing our diverse culture and celebrating it uh, as much as we can. 
Well, it's interesting, Gaston, because we've been talking about a lot of very, very serious topics, and 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 there there is a lot of tragedy in this collection, especially in regard to to war trauma. And yet, I leave you know after reading the collection with a lot of like humorous moments, um, mm-hmm. and and I, I'm very interested in how you you decided to portray things uh, through a comedic lens and, and, and I guess that, that inclination to lean into comedy at times. I was wondering if you could speak to that. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I feel very much at home um, in comedy. Like, I, I, I guess I would consider myself a comedic writer. I mean, I would probably classify my stories as tragic comic, mm-hmm. but I've always loved comedy because there's something very disarming about comedy. It's not easy to make a reader laugh, especially on the page. I'm not sure if I'm always successful at it, but it, it, it's disarming. And if you can make a reader laugh, you can kind of almost take them anywhere. And for me, if, if, if I want to talk about serious matters, I feel most comfortable getting there through comedy, but that's not to dismiss the serious nature of whatever subject matter I'm I'm tackling. Um, It's always to pay the the utmost respect to that subject matter, but getting there through comedy, if that kind of makes sense. And, you know, there's something also universal about comedy, especially when it's absurd, Uh, because I think when something's absurd, it doesn't necessarily have to have a cultural context for a reader to to get the joke, you know, or, or to understand the humor behind it. So I, I do find there's something universal about that too. And so, yeah, I guess it just comes out like that naturally for me. I, I can't imagine writing any other way. I think I'd really feel miserably if, if, if it weren't through, you know, a comedic lens. I mean, there's multi-layers, right? Because you also did ethnographic research and you interviewed a lot of Dearborn residents. And so uh, I would love to hear too about how that played into your storytelling and like, you know, in in addition to the tragic comedy, why you needed to do that research. Sure. You know, I've, I've, I've found that like for years now, ever, I, ever since I started writing seriously in my early 20s, I've always been interested in ethnographic research, just understanding a place better by not only living there and absorbing the atmosphere, but also by just talking to people, listening to their stories uh, and, and recording their stories. So, for instance, for uh, this was before the pandemic, I shadowed um, a, a butcher in Dearborn for several days. So I spent time. I met his uh, at his shop in Dearborn, and then one morning I met him at his uh, shop, and we drove uh, early in the morning to the Eastern Market, which is in Detroit, where there are a lot of big uh, butchery shops where he got his meat from, and just kind of learning about you know how how he cut up the meat, how he um, how he interacted with customers, uh, with his coworkers. Um, that gave me insight into the trade. Now, I do have uh, a story in the collection about a butcher, but it has nothing to, it, it bears no resemblance to the butcher I actually interviewed. But what I did do f- from the ethnographic research was at least get the details, you know, of, of maybe cutting up the meat and, and the, the smell of the store and, and whatnot. You know, years ago when I, I used to live in Lebanon um, and I conducted this interview with an ex militiaman. And he allowed me to record his story. And this is, you know, over over 10 years ago. And I never was able to kind of use that material until one of the stories in this collection where there's this character, uh, this uncle, who may or may not have fought in the Civil War. Uh, And I used the material from the interview with the ex-militia man for for that story. Um, So, you know, I I never know what it might lead to, um, but I always kind of keep it on hand. 
Ozan, I, I leave this collection, you know, with the sense, the strong sense of an intertwined community of Dearborn. I think your title is like obviously very appropriate. Mm-hmm. And I and I heard you say that when you love a community, you can critique it. And so, and so I'm curious about this because I've written about the community that I grew up in and I'm always a little conflicted and maybe even wary sometimes yeah. when I publish about them. Right. And so I'm just kind of curious about your own sensibility of presenting these woven strands of this community um, and then, you know, what you expect uh or do you expect a reception from from dearborn in regard to the book yeah i mean i mean i I love the city so much and i I love the community but um you know one way of expressing that love for the community is also trying to um to kind of make note of certain um social political issues that we need to address the the lgbtq community you know that is an underrepresented voice in in dearborn and, and so I have a story that kind of communicates with that. So it's a, th- this attempt to address a variety of different social political issues that I, I wish people in Dearborn would talk would feel more comfortable and, and free to talk about. But it's it, yeah, it's it's difficult because I don't I, I don't know how the the community is going to respond uh, to the collection. But I hope that they see that. I've represented it's and it's not it's not you know my representation is not the only it's just a representation of Dearborn it's not the representation but I hope that they see that you know I've written these stories with a lot with a lot of love for the city and, and I didn't want to hold back uh, on like, what I was seeing and what I was experiencing so I was mentioning earlier there are a lot of different Arab ethnicities in, in Dearborn and quite often there are tensions between the Arab ethnicities and so that's something that I wanted to address in, in the story collection because I thought it was important to address. But I should say that all these issues just came naturally. It's not that I, I set out, you know, I need to write the story to address a certain social political issue. It, it was just, it just came out organically because, it's, you know, it's from the atmosphere and from what I was seeing and, and hearing. Yeah, well, I think that's a great way to think about for a writer to think about a community when writing about it is is with love and care, even if there is a critique there, it's coming from a good place. Right. So thank you for for opening up Dearborn, your stories and Dearborn, the city to me and and coming to talk about it with us. Thanks, Kassan. Thank you so much. It's It's been an honor. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. All right, Brooke, for this week's trend, we're going we're gonna to talk about Substack. And it's actually way past time that we go deeper into Substack. It's a, it's a trend and it's a phenomenon. And we're also announcing that we finally got it together to do a Substack for Right Minded, which we're excited to share with our listeners. You can find it at rightminded.substack.com. So, Brooke, let's talk a little bit about why we're doing this and what we hope it will do for us in the context of explaining why we're jumping on this particularly trendy bandwagon. <laughs> yeah, let's. You know, Substacks are really taking the world by storm. People love them. It's a great way to follow people and content that you care about. And a lot of podcasts are doing Substacks because it's just an obvious way to let listeners know that an episode has dropped. So we're doing it for that reason. And then our Substack showcases the episode. We're transcribing the show or part of the show for people who might want to read it and not necessarily listen 
listen because all of us consume content in different ways. Uh, and finally, and probably most important to me is that there's just different levels of interactivity. And this is going to be something that we'll experiment with Grant, you know, bonus content, uh, things like the show highlights and writing exercises. And over time, I hope that we'll learn more about what our listeners want. And then if we see it growing organically, you know, depending on engagement, then I imagine that we'll, you know, figure out other ways to engage with listeners. So I'm excited about all of it for those reasons. Anything else coming to mind for you, Grant? Yeah, I, I don't know. I think all those reasons, of course, and I, I think it's just a great way to essentially listen to a show without actually listening to it because we'll, <laughs> we'll provide a quote or two or an outtake from the show so you can you can get a taste of the episode almost as a kind of preview. Um, and it's also a great way for us to, I think, have a conversation with listeners because Substack has, you know, a comment feature. And I've particularly enjoyed this myself with my personal Substack. It's just really touching and meaningful to hear people's thoughts and reactions and be able to respond directly to them and get to know them. And I've never been publishing my Substack newsletter for, I think, about a year and a half now. And Brooke, as you said, it's it's super hard to squeeze it into my busy life. And I started it as just an experiment, uh, but it kind of took me over. And I'm, I'm addicted to my Substack now. It's, it, it's actually really the writing that I like to do most. And I think that's because I, I get this immediate engagement with readers, as I mentioned, um, as opposed to a, to a book or other forms of writers, writing, which might take several years. And... I should note that Substack uh, was created by writers, and somehow I just think that shows. And so that's why I'm attracted to the platform. Well, I like what you're saying because um, it's reminding me that it's fun. Yeah. Like just in starting it, <laughs> it's been fun. Uh, and then the interactivity, as you said, is a big draw. Um, it's also clear that media is splintering right now and has been for a while. I think this is one of the most massive societal changes in our lifetimes, really. You know, this notion that we all only had access to like some evening news programs and that was it for years and years. And then the internet comes along in the early 90s and then the 24-hour news cycle is ushered in. Uh, I looked it up and by all accounts, it, it says that the 24-hour news cycle started with the O.J. Simpson trial. Hmm. And, you know, I certainly remember that and was an adult yeah. <laughs> when that happened. Uh, so our media is changed forever. And then we're seeing this again as people are leaving television and opting to get their news online. Uh, I saw a really interesting stat, actually, that CNN had its lowest viewership in more than seven years uh, over the summer. And like CNN's viewership this summer was about 80,000 people. And by contrast, a single episode of the Joe Rogan experience reaches 11 million people. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> And reminder, you know, anyone can start their own podcast. It's not like you have to be sponsored by some big network. And this is kind of what Substack is tapping into and offering, right? It's saying to people with big followings, you do not need to be part of another entity. You can be anonymous and you can grow your following and you can make money for those Substacks that are trying to make money. So for now, we're not trying to monetize. But Grant, uh, what are your thoughts or efforts on the monetization front for your own Substack? Yeah, I, I don't monetize my Substack either. It's all free. But I guess what I like about it is that I can decide to monetize it on different levels if I choose to at a later date. For example, I write weekly, so I could make two posts a month free and then charge for the other two so I can kind of keep building two different communities. Or I believe I believe they have a tip jar function. I actually haven't in, 
truly explored all their monetization features because I really just like writing my stuff and having people read it and engaging with them. But there are a lot of different tools. And, and since writers do so much for free, I think, I think Substack is a nice way for writers to make a little money and to make money outside of the confines of any publishing contract, as you say, to take advantage of the splintering of, of, of the media. Yeah, I agree. And uh, so thanks, everyone. And if you have any tips on Substack that you wish you would like to share with us, you know, that we could put out to the broader community, but also for ourselves, it would actually be really fun to bring a guest on who's doing Substack well and right, you know, to bring our listeners Mm, some good best practices. Yeah. So uh, send us a pitch if that's you. And meanwhile, thank you. As always, we will be back next week and we do invite you to check out our Substack and subscribe at www.orjustrightminded.substack.com. See you next week.